This section here is interesting. The book of James is interesting. The book of James is interesting because it's a book that is full of very strong exhortations to behavior. It's a, um, but it's also a book that's full of strong exhortations to behavior that almost reads like the book of Proverbs. I was struck by it much more as I tried to build a sermon because you're going and looking at what's in this text and saying, what's, what's going to be the message that flows out of this? And really what you have much more than a, than a message that flows is several different things happening together. In fact, even in some of these sentences, there's a mixture. So if you look in, in your outline... I haven't actually gone directly in sequence there. And part of the reason is, as I looked at this text, I saw really four different things in the text. Three of them are very specific exhortations. Do this. Be like this. One of them, though, was a much more general statement about the Christian life and what we should do as Christians before the word of the Lord like we do here on a Sunday morning. It really applies a lot to the way we think about what ought to happen when we come in together on Sunday and then we get done and we leave and go out into the world. But before we do that, and this I think will happen over and over again, I expect it will, as, as Larry goes through this text, the book of James is very hard to read unless we hold firm to a foundation of what the truth of the gospel is. See, the book of James talks to us over and over again about how we're going to live. And if all we read was, this is what you ought to look like. This is what you ought to look like. This is what you ought to look like. We could be discouraged and made hopeless in our faith. So one of the things we have to remember, every week we have to remember, James is writing this book to people like you and I, people who are in the church, people who have heard the word. He makes that clear in the beginning. We don't know everything about what's going on in the church, but from, from, from reading the text, we can imagine that there were at least a couple of things happening. One of them was struggle and strife within the church that was arising out of people arguing over matters they probably shouldn't have acted so much like experts about. The tongue comes in over and over again in this book. And the other thing is, it seems like there may have been some people who were ignoring all of the calls to go and live the gospel out, but sitting within the church and holding fast to the claim that they were Christians. Paul, who's usually the person who's quoted, if you want to do that, if you want to, if you want to try to say, no, the gospel doesn't, doesn't ask me to do anything. The gospel's just on grace. It has no command. And there are people who say that. Paul's often the person that's quoted, but Paul himself very clearly says, no, 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 wait. You're mixing a couple of things up. So as we get ready to go, we want to make sure that we don't mix up what Paul tells us not to mix up. And there's, there's two places that I would send you, not right now, but if you want to look later, there's, there's, and there's, there's lots of them, but there's two places to go to in this. One of them that I love is in Isaiah, the calling of Isaiah in, in chapter 6. 
The reason I love the calling of Isaiah in chapter 6, am I going to be messing you up the whole time if I'm walking around? All right, I'll stay in, I'll try to stay more in one place. <clears throat> Here's the thing that's so fascinating, because people can talk about the law being Old Testament and the grace being New Testament, but I love the calling of Isaiah. Because if you remember this, this is Isaiah walking into the throne room of God. And he sees the presence of God, and he's immediately destroyed, right? He says, I am undone. You may remember this scene. He falls to the ground. He's overwhelmed with the holiness of God. He knows that he's utterly destroyed. But then, without asking for it, God sends his servant with this glowing ember, right? And he touches it to Isaiah's lips. The lips part's a little bit odd to us, and so we remember that God was calling Isaiah to a ministry of speaking. So that's why Isaiah concentrates on the filthiness of his lips. But God sends his messenger to lift Isaiah up. And then Isaiah, being made right, says, what can I do? Right? What can I do? I want to do something. The gospel gets him activated. He wants to know what to do. We also see it, if you look in Colossians, Colossians is really interesting because in Colossians, Paul works very hard. Boy, I can... Feel this going. We'll see what happens. Paul is angry with the Colossians. They have forgotten the gospel of grace. They have come under law. People, teachers are walking into their midst and telling them, if you're a Christian, you've got to do this. If you're a Christian, you've got to do that. If you're a Christian, you've got to do this third thing. And if you look in Colossians 2, he's just going through saying, who did this to you? This is terrible. You know the gospel of grace. You are saved by the work of Christ alone. There is no other way for you to get right with God than by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he is angry with the church for becoming people focused in on law. But what's so interesting is then in Colossians 3, he has this tiny little section where he says that you were dead and you've been made alive in Christ. If, you're de- if you were dead and now you're alive in Christ, set your eyes on him. And then what does he do? He says, and completely quit sinning. I mean, if you go read in, in Colossians 3 there, there's a very strong call on the basis of the recognition that in Christ we are set free. A strong call. I've got one back over here. I'll try it, but thank you. Um, a strong call to live better. And here's the thing as you go through the book of James. If you understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is one in which that God on the cross bore all the consequences, the heavenly consequences for your relationship with God. And that Christ resurrected, we can be resurrected with. And so while we are going to have a real examination of our faith as we go through here, you will not be able to bear up underneath it unless you remember and grab hold of the reality that you are made right with Christ, right with God through Christ alone. You're made right with God through Christ alone. But now clinging to that, James, knowing that, is now speaking to people like you and me who do know it and who have heard that message, but who don't seem to be living out that message. 
So the first thing I want to do today is just spend a couple of minutes on three of these very specific exhortations. There's a lot of those in the book of James. As you go through, you're going to hear them. You're going to hear a bunch of them. I want to do those because I want to talk about how that plays out. It's what the text says. It's real stuff that's going on. It's good for us. But I also want to bookend it. The final part is to talk about this this interesting little story about the mirror and try to explain what that means. Because in light of the gospel, clinging to the gospel, this little bit about the mirror can be super helpful to us to be able to understand what ought to be happening here and with each other and as we live out the good news. So let's do the first specific exhortation. This is verses 19 and 20. Know this. <clears throat> I keep, maybe I'll try deeper. Know this. My, I don't know what to do here. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this is interesting. Listen well, think before speaking, be slow to anger. It sounds like advice. It really is. It's, a lot of this is wisdom. Right? This isn't even... This, this isn't even like the law that says you can never. Is anger ever righteous? Yeah. It is. There is righteous anger. God has righteous anger. Christ, when he goes into the temple and people are selling just animals and changing out money in there, he gets furious and starts throwing things around. This is not a total prohibition of all anger. But this is speaking to something in the church that you're probably well aware of. This is us having a disagreement and me going into that disagreement. And you know, you know what I want to do when I'm talking? I want to make sure that what I know gets into your head. And that's my only goal. And every opportunity, every quiet moment, every silence, I'll interrupt if I have to. Because I'm not trying to figure out what's in your head and get it into mine and understand it. It's a kind of, I want to win. My kids will tell you, I, my kids will tell you, I do this, especially at home. I already know what they did. I already know what they were thinking. I already know how broken they were. And I go in and I say, help me to understand this. And they get three words out. And I say, stop! And start yelling at them. Now the reality is, I, I don't know. In fact, my youngest daughter has a tendency at times to just feel like she needs to say the words that will make a conversation end. And I know that there are times that she has confessed to things she didn't do. Because she knew when I walked in the room, those were the right words. I did it. I did it. We do that in our families. We do that in our marriages. We do that in our churches. And we do that in the world today. It's everywhere. There is no listening. There is no trying to understand. There is no waiting to hear. There is no putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Be slow to speak. Listen well. And then anger, if anger really does belong, understand that even where anger is righteous, the anger itself 
is almost never going to be the source of right behavior. It's right to be angry at times in our marriages, in our families, in our churches. We should be jealous for the truth of God. We should want to do well. But when we start to live out anger, then even if we were justified in the beginning, we can become unjustified in how we respond. And what James is saying to us is in this community we call the church and all of our relationships and even in our relationship with the world, listen, slow down. People don't need to know what's in your head as badly as you think they do. And if you listen, what's in your head may become a lot more valuable than it was at the start. Now, how does that systematically roll into the next thing we've got? Well, really doesn't all that much. That's kind of a standalone. Like, okay, we got that. And then James is moving on. Now, here's where we're skipping a little bit. Because he does two more little specific ones. Now, that is a thing that rolls out of what he's talking about. But so now we're going to skip down to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I'm actually going to start from the, from the ending there. This other glass of water. This is one of those places where we need to remember that firm foundation. Because hearing words like that person's religion is worthless is tough. Some of you probably hear something like, your tongue should be bridled. And you probably immediately think, I don't have a very bridled tongue. I don't have a very bridled tongue. But so now imagine you hear your tongue should be bridled. And you think, I don't have a bridled tongue. And then what do you hear? Your religion is worthless. Wait, that's devastating. Hold firm. Hold firm. You're standing before God. You're standing before God is in the work of Christ. This is not referring to the person who having it revealed to them sees it, doesn't want it, recognizes it as, as a need, confesses it, and within the body of Christ, wants it to get better. The, the worthless religion is in the person who is content to live that way. In an unbridled tongue, I'm just going to do damage. And there are people in the church, and I'm sure this is who James is speaking to, who are willing to live lives of causing destruction by an unbridled tongue throughout all of their days. And at some point in time, we need to be able to say within the church, that is not what the gospel does. Now, the desire is not that the person feels like they're not a Christian. The desire is the person is, feels the sense of need that if I'm truly in Christ, I wouldn't live this way. I wouldn't live this way. So the unbridled tongue, why, why would the gospel result in a bridled tongue? Why would the gospel result in a bridled tongue? See, that's how James is saying this. Understanding the gospel would result in a bridled tongue. Well, because remember what the gospel does is standing before the law completely humiliates us in all of our pride. The idea that I bring something good to the table and it's because of this that I am saved is washed away completely in the face of Christ. 
everything I have, every value I have, every talent I have, every skill you have, every experience you have, you have only by the grace of God. And recognizing that humility of utter dependence on the work of Jesus Christ slows us down. The world doesn't need us as much as we think they do. Now, this is not a message to everybody. Some of us in the church need to speak up more. So again, every one of these is not speaking to every single person. These are isolated things. There are people whose voices need to be heard, who are so humble, they don't bring good things to the church that need to be heard. But there are many of us who don't have that kind of humility and who go from moment to moment pretty sure that the most important thing that for any room, most important thing for any room is what's in my head. And let me get out of here real quick. The gospel brings humility that will lead us to a bridled tongue. And if your tongue is completely unbridled, that's worth an examination. What would do that? Where does that come from? And a desire to change. All right, so our third exhortation, verse 27, is less of a don't do this and more of a positive one. It flows in from 26, but I separated it out. Religion that is pure and undefiled before, the, the before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this is really interesting. I, this has the sound of being the whole gospel. Right? It's, it's kind of, but it's, it's not. He's not saying all that there is to pure religion is this. He's saying these are, these are signs of, of true Christianity. These are, these are ways that it would look. Widows and orphans, that language, we, we still understand the need for compassion to widows and orphans, but not as strongly as in this time period. Right, the widows and orphans, these are the most vulnerable, the most underprivileged, the most dependent upon the mercy of others to live. Our world today has people who are utterly dependent on the mercy of others to live. It's not, it's not the same groups exactly. But one of the things that's interesting about it is it does make a call for us. The church. Now let's look at the whole church. To what degree is the church in America right now exemplified by its care for the most vulnerable? Is that one of the most visible things about our church? Our people. Is that one of the most visible things about how we live? Your life is different. This, this is, these, can, these are the kinds, again, those kinds of exhortations that can be hard to apply. Because there's so many different ways this works out in our lives. This doesn't, we, when we hear widows and orphans, there are people for whom they very, like churches will very specifically set up a widow care group. Well, that's good because there are impacts on that. But the, the idea here is that when there are people who are vulnerable and needy, that like Christ came to people who were utterly vulnerable and needy, his church would reflect that love by serving those who are vulnerable and needy. And so in your life, you may, there, there may be people who would qualify under this umbrella of what widow and orphan symbolizes just for a time period. 
They have huge struggles in their life. And you come in and you take care of them for a while. It could be long-term care. It could be orphans, certainly. Um, there are organizations here in South Florida that do wonderful work with children who are in foster care who may not be orphaned, but effectively it's almost worse than orphaned or children who are orphaned. There are Christian groups that work on adoptions very specifically because this is these, are peop- these children are so needy and vulnerable. Those are great examples of that. And you are helping to serve when the church... When you give to a church and the church gives to those groups and when you yourself are giving to those groups, that is fulfilling that call. But in, in that time period, and I think for us, I think what the, the call is, where do you have compassion for those who walk into your life and are needy? Do you have compassion for those who walk into your life and are vulnerable? For those who do not have people around them who care? This is what James is speaking to, that if we have really understood again that we were utterly helpless and dead in our sin, if we have really grabbed hold of that, then how can we help but be sympathetic? How can we help but be sympathetic to those who are vulnerable and needy in this world? Whether their need and their vulnerability is physical need and vulnerability or spiritual need and vulnerability. We were helpless and Christ came to us. And so when we see people helpless, we should be full of a desire to serve. Now, that gets us to this last part about the mirror. I, I, I just didn't get it for a while. I kept trying to read it. I kept trying to think this through. So let me, let me read this because it's going to put an umbrella over top of all the different things we've talked about today. And I'm going to come back to this balance of feeling challenged and not feeling destroyed. So here in chapter 21, verse 21, excuse me. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, I found this so odd in 23 for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like and i i I think that james is not saying this is what everybody does he's saying it's like imagine a person who goes and looks in the mirror right there's a mirror back there i got to keep not looking at the mirror back there but, you know, I do it. I go, oh, my hair's out of place and my clothes aren't right or I've got a big stain I didn't know I had or got, what's going, what happened to my face? Or, you know, luckily it's not bouncing back my voice so I'm only hearing this gravelly note as opposed to what it really sounds like. That he's saying, imagine you have those. I mean, look, when we look in mirrors, a little bit of us is looking forward What's wrong? Do I look right? Imperfections. I'm looking for imperfections. I'm getting things right. Get my hair right. Whether you think I did it or not, don't tell me. 
trying to get my, my, my face shaved correctly. Trying to see if I got anything going on. My, I've got three daughters. They're all teenagers. They're trying to figure out is anything turning a little bit pink and I need to get it stopped before a pimple comes out. Trying to get their hair just right, their clothes just right. We are trying to fix up what we see in the mirror. And what James is saying is, can you imagine somebody who would look in a mirror and say, whew, that's a mess, and then just leave? Ah, comb would fix that. (laughs) All right, I'm out of here. But that no, that when we look in a mirror, we look to see what can be fixed, and then we work to fix it. And this is what he's trying to say. The law, the law is a mirror. See, when I hear words, there's a part of me that knows. I'm not always getting it right with my children. Right? We all know that. Whatever the relationships are, we're not getting it all right. But when I hear James say, be slow to listen, slow to talk, fast to listen slow to anger hearing that directly what does it do to me it sets me right in front of myself like a mirror I have called to mind by that word of law the me that was there three days ago when my children needed to be talked to but not like that the law is a mirror for me It reveals to me what is imperfect. It reveals to me what is hard. These words, just these three little specific exhortations are hard. They don't get everybody in here. Not all of you have all the same problems. By the time you get done with the book of James, there is going to be a mirror of the law set in front of you that disturbs you. But what what James is saying is, in this, you will see it when you hear the law. And that's good. I need to have that set in front of me. I don't need to have it set in front of me because otherwise I'm not saved. That work was done by Christ. I am in relationship with my daughters. I am called by God to disciple them. I need to have it set in front of me because if I continue to live in that sin, I am harming them. If we continue to live in our sin together, we harm each other. If we live in our sin in the church, we harm the gospel message to go to the world. So what he's saying is, like a person who looks in a mirror and therefore tries to fix the problems, be people who come in and hear the word and resting on the grace of Jesus Christ so that you're able to be strong to hear it because you know it doesn't mean you're not right with God then be able to hear, I can do better. Now some stuff can be fixed with a comb, but some stuff can't. Sometimes the mirror reveals brokenness that's been your whole life long. Sometimes we have to confess in public. We have to have accountability. Sometimes we don't do much better than getting just a little bit better. The gospel doesn't tell you you got to get it perfect. Perfect is in heaven. What the gospel does is say, Christ has set you free from the consequences of that sin, but he has called you into a life together, called us into a life together 
before the world to declare the good news so that even more can come into the kingdom. So do better. Seek to be sanctified. Be willing to sit in front of the mirror of the law that reveals things you don't want to see and do the work together to try to get better. Before we close, though, I do want to say this. That is counting on us being a community of people who really do know the gospel. Now, James had to be aware that there were going to be people in that community who didn't really know it. And some of his hard words here, 95% of what I would want to do in a group of Christians, in a group of people who come to church, is to say, remember that Christ has set you free. But I don't really know what all of our inner lives are like. Some of us will be in position where we go before the mirror of the law and we start to be overwhelmed by discouragement. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. And I know that some of you live that life. That is not what James is trying to do to you. But there are, you hear testimonies, I've heard testimonies of people who grew their whole life in the church. And they didn't come to know the truth of Jesus Christ until they were 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, even though they'd heard it and heard it and heard it again. How does that happen? How do we reconcile that? And this is what I think you can do. If you go before that law, and what you realize is, when you think about Why does God love me? Why does God love me? That the answers that you're giving in your heart are look at all the things I did. Look at all the things I do. If you realize, set in front of the mirror of the law, that in reality you have been putting your faith in your own good works, then, only then, if that's who you are, feeling like you're relationship with God depends on your good works then some of these strong words are for you you need to sit in front of that law and if you're here and you don't know Christ at all and these this law sounds like it's too much even the little bits just bind your tongue is too much who can do that James is going to say that soon if this is the gospel, if this is the truth, that we have to get everything right to be loved by God, you should then feel overwhelmed in the church or outside of the church. But that's where we go all the way back to the beginning. So that's not the message. What The message that Christ has given to you, the invitation that is there for you, is that if you stare into the law, you will be destroyed. But Christ fulfilled that law perfectly. And He wants to lift you up. If you don't know that good news, don't come in here to try to get right with God. There's going to be weeks of things to do. And they're good things to do. But if you're still trying to get into relationship with Christ for the first time, if you want to know what that means, or if you think that what it means is the list of things that you've done well, that's not it at all, and James will destroy you. The good news is, Christ will and has set us free if we are in Him by faith. And so we can hear hard words, because He's done the hard work. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that today and as your community here in this church moves forward through this book, Lord, that you will use the words of James to convict any of us who are presuming on your grace to convict us of our sin if we're just taking for granted our righteousness. Lord, use these words to help us to to remember you've set us free for each other. We don't have to think about ourselves anymore. We can live for each other. Lord, help us to be people of peace and patience. Help us to be willing to fight, to be willing to listen, to slow down our tongues, to hold them back, to remember that the world doesn't need us. It needs you above all to be called into compassion and willing to actively serve your people who are vulnerable in this world. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to to open up hard words and to have it be a mirror and reveal those areas that demonstrate to us our continuing need for your grace and forgiveness. Because Lord, we just cannot stand on our own righteousness. We are so broken and fall so quickly. Lord, above all, I pray that if If there's anyone here this week or any of the weeks of this message, that as they hear these hard words, if they're inspired to hopelessness, that you would make clear the message that hopelessness in their own works is right, but that you have done all of the work for them, and that it's only by faith in you that they can be saved, that you would move in their hearts to call them into the kingdom through the message of your servant James. In your name we pray all these things. Amen.